This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Oh boy, oh boy. I'm coming upon home turf. And the excitement to talk about the places and legends I grew up hearing about literally has me bursting with excitement. Also discovering some new legends and folklore and stories that I haven't heard before. It's more than I can bear. I really feel like I'm going to explode. And not because of my trip to Harold's last night. If you know, you know. It's because I don't know where to start, or where to begin, or even how to limit myself. I've already talked about the Jersey Devil and Clinton Road in earlier episodes, so I'll spare you guys the rehash. Here are a few of the other spooks that my now home state has to offer. Do you believe in ghosts? Join me on a journey through America's dark and haunted past as we explore the folklore and ghost stories that have been passed down for generations. What scares you? Let's find out. I am Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Among the living, no one would ever want to live at the house at the corner of Lowell and Terrace Avenues again. According to the landlord, That's the fear of a couple who had fled the three-bedroom ranch in the middle of the night after living there for only one week because they said it's haunted. A well-known orthodontist in Ocean County, Dr. Richard Lopez, who owns the property, had filed a $15,000 lawsuit against the family. According to him, they stigmatized the property and made it harder for him to rent or sell it in the future. The couple who are engaged to be married moved into the home on March 1st with Callan's teenage daughter and six-year-old son. Their clothes and towels were thrown from closets and scattered across the floor. Doors creaked open and slammed shut in unoccupied rooms after they settled in. According to the couple, unintelligible whispers faded in and out of the air after everyone was tucked in at night. It was the muffled sound of something being dragged through the cellar that came up through the vents that they found the most disturbing. The family left the house on March 10th and moved into a motel room in Point Pleasant Beach. From the pages of the Asbury Park Press, October 31st, 2017. Haunted house in Tom's River for sale. As our homes and neighborhoods are overrun this Halloween night with ghouls and goblins with an appetite for candy, here's a thought. Would you be willing to live in a real haunted house? If you believe in that sort of thing, there's a house for sale at 100 Terrace Avenue in Tom's River. 
with a very colorful history. It was at this house in 2012 where Josie Chinchilla and Michelle Callan followed a lawsuit with the state superior court against their landlord, Dr. Richard Lopez, for his alleged failure to disclose that something was already occupying the residence just across the street from St. Joseph Grad School and Donovan Catholic High School. The couple sued to get out of their lease for the return of their $2,250 deposit. After the Asbury Park Press first reported on their litigation, the story went viral and garnered national attention. Later, as a result of the publicity, both parties agreed to have their case heard on the long-running, nationally syndicated television program, The People's Court, where Judge Marilyn Milan ruled against the couple. The judgment was rendered on the basis that there is no legal grounds to vacate a lease because the occupants believe the premises is haunted. Nevertheless, Milan ordered Lopez, a respected orthodontist in Tom's River whose practice was next door to the house, to spend a night in the residence. As of this article, the house has been on the market for more than a year, with no sellers to date. Jerry J. Earl, a real estate agent with Weikart Realtors in Tom's River, had represented the listing before Colta Commercial Realty took over the sale of the property. She said that she was unaware of all the fuss. The market value at the house is currently listed at $276,600. Chris from outside of the article jumping in here. For $276,600 in this market, I would move in with Sasquatch. That is a price that you cannot turn up your nose to, regardless of who's in the house. So there's a couple of ghosts. Big deal. All right, let's go back to the article. Earl said that she was never informed of any issues related to the property, such as the notion that it's haunted, which is on the corner lot adjacent to Lopez's office complex on Hooper Avenue. I've been in that place many times. I've never seen anything, Earl said. A haunted house does not necessarily deter prospective buyers. See? A survey by Realtor.com reports that 33% out of 1,000 people said they'd be willing to buy a home with such a spooky reputation. That's a weird way to word that, 33% out of 1,000 people. Why not just say 300 out of 1,000? Or 33% of people. I mean, what do you mean? Why would you, why would you make it so? Why, why, why you gotta complicate things? But if you are indeed a believer and you think the house on Terrace Avenue may be for you, you might want to know what you're in for. The Asbury Park Press reporter had some first-hand experience there. Back in March of 2012, the editor of the paper had received a late-night voicemail from a panicked Callan, whose family had just fled the home in question, which they had only moved into a week earlier. The house was haunted, Callan insisted. The exasperated 36-year-old mother and fiancé explained that they were intent on going through the courts to prove it. A few days later, a photographer and this reporter were sent to meet the family for an interview at their forsaken house on the corner of Lowell Terrace. An unremarkable-looking three-bedroom ranch built in 1959 located along one of the busiest traffic jug handles in Tom's River. Callan was joined by her fiancé, Chinchilla, who was 37 years old, and her teenage daughter, Ashley. Since that night, they had been living in a one-room motel in Point Pleasant Beach. As soon as they pulled into the driveway behind the house, you could see that they were uncomfortable. It had not been their idea to return. 
the Asbury Park press had insisted on a tour and photos. And furthermore, they were worried that I would betray them as kooks. After introductions, they unlocked the back door to the kitchen and we all went in. I advised them that I would be using a digital recorder to be sure I quoted them accurately, which remained on the whole time we were together while clutched in my right hand. I observed that the house seemed bigger than it appeared from the outside. There was a furnished basement below and a very spacious family room to one end of the house, all with a very 1980s vibe. I watched with interest as Callan and her daughter moved quickly from room to room, like victims of a break-in debating whether their belongings left behind in their frantic midnight exodus had been disturbed or moved in their absence. With the bright afternoon sunlight streaming in through the open Venetian blinds, the constant rumble of traffic outside, it was difficult to imagine anyone feeling the need to flee this place. However, all three family members began to explain what had happened in the week they had moved into the house. An escalating series of unexplained phenomena that seemed intent on driving them out. It started as soon as the family moved in, they recalled. They would come home from work and school to find their clothes ejected from their bedroom closets, strewn all over the floors. Doors creaked open and slammed closed in unoccupied areas of the house, and lights switched on and off without human intervention. In the overnight hours, footsteps were heard from the empty kitchen after everyone was tucked in, and they swore they could hear unintelligible whispering in the air from no visible source. The most disturbing thing, they claimed, was the sound that came through the vents to the basement. The muffled sound of something that sounded like a large animal, lumbering seven feet below their feet. Each room had a story from that week of hell, a moment where someone recalled that they had heard this or that, or something more terrifying had taken place. Chinchilla said he initially applied logic and common sense to what was happening, and at first they ignored the peculiar occurrences. It takes time getting used to any house. Could be the boiler or maybe the central air conditioning, they assured each other. However, such rationalism failed him after the events of March 10th, 2012 the night the family left. Just before they bundled everyone into their car and took off for the hotel down the road, Chinchilla and Callan had settled into bed to watch television. That's when they heard the tapping against the set. After having spent that week trying to be the voice of reason, he tried to ignore it. There had to be a rational explanation that was simply not immediately evident. But then Chinchilla felt a tug of the sheets over him. He watched in bewilderment as the bedclothes began to slide off him. He then felt an invisible hand land on his arm. Callan, who was next to him, claims that she saw what looked like a shapeless dark apparition in the bedroom. I don't believe in this stuff, said Chinchilla, after speaking openly about an invisible hand and bedsheets that moved on their own. We're living it, Callan interjected, who explained that she had become convinced that the house was not merely haunted, but that the family was being subjected to something truly evil something perhaps only religion or faith can offer an explanation for. I was struck by the family's earnestness. Whatever was going on here, whether it was some form of hysteria or whatever, they seemed absolutely convinced about what they were telling me. As we moved from room to room, they became more comfortable with me and more animated about their experiences. After I left the house, I went back to the office, sat down at my desk, put on my earphones and began to transcribe the interview from my digital recorder. Less than 10 minutes into the audio, I heard something that I've been unable to explain since. As the family was telling me about their ordeal and what they thought was happening to them, 
a childlike voice is heard whispering directly into the recorder. They don't know. My first reaction as a recall was amusement. I didn't recognize the voice as belonging to the five of us who were present, but I conceded that a whisper wouldn't necessarily be identifiable. The voice came at the same time as we were leaving the family room and no one else was speaking at that particular moment. I let the recording continue to play, listening for context, but none came. As all my colleagues in the room were aware that I had spent part of my afternoon in a haunted house, I was eager to share with them the recording of the unidentified voice. One by one, I placed the earphones over their heads and watched their eyes widen and light up with the same initial amusement and general weirdness I had felt after listening to the recording. It occurred to me that I may have recorded the family's teenage daughter in a brief side conversation with her mother, Chinchilla. Eventually, I played the recording back for the family so they could tell me which of them may have been the ghost voice I had captured. That's not me, Ashley said, as if she was being accused of something sinister. To this day, I'm not sure what I recorded, and because I'd like to be employable in the future, I'm not saying it's a ghost or something that could only be explained in biblical terms. But I would argue that it does make a good story on Halloween. Hey, folks. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, I just want to say that I pass that house that I just talked about almost daily. And I did not know about it until I found the article and the little report about the haunting. And it's pretty cool, so now I'm going to keep my eyes open anytime I'm around there. Anyway, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody for tuning in and listening and sharing and joining me this month. The excitement is probably evident in my voice because I'm now talking about the places that I call home. New Jersey, which is my current home, and very shortly, I will be talking about New York. And... That I can't wait for. Oh, boy, oh, boy. By the end of the month, I think the Monday before Halloween, I get to New York. And... Mwah! Chef's kiss. But, uh, you know, like I've been saying, there's a couple of other things coming. Uh, a couple of original stories. A couple of stories from guest authors who I've uh, narrated some of their stuff before on the show. And they have granted me a few... Uh, creepy originals to to narrate so i'm gonna sprinkle those in throughout the month and um the nightmare collective two of those stories are coming so it's gonna be a good october and it's gonna be a good halloween and hopefully let's gear up and have a good rest of 2023 and an even better 2024 i know i'm putting the car before the horse we're still in october a lot can happen still but just Putting out good vibes out there for everybody. Alrighty, let's uh let's keep on strolling through old dirty Jersey. Later, folks. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boy's easy opening, smooth pouring container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. 
I've talked about Clinton Road and the lore that surrounded that in a much earlier episode. I think that was like episode two or three. Wrong Turn. That's the name of the episode, Wrong Turn. And uh, co-stars my wife for uh, people who are interested in that. Um, <clears throat> I know she enjoyed it very much and she has a filthy, filthy mouth that she uses so much in that episode. And that's not me. I didn't write that dialogue. She just ad-libbed it and just was... Cussing up a storm. Ooh, boy. I'm gonna enjoy this. It's tough doing this state, because much like the Jersey Devil, I've talked about a few of the other spooky things that have surrounded this place I call home. But Clinton isn't the only road. And this one has a much spookier name than Clinton. I'm talking, of course, about Shades of Death. As it winds through Jenny Jump State Forest and into Warren County, Shades of Death Road is associated with many legends. There are pillars of mist rising from the top of an old haunted lake bed along the road, one of the most famous names in New Jersey roadside culture. According to Pete Valeri, he has encountered this unexplained occurrence while out fishing. He believes that it may be linked to the legend of early settlers committing violence against Native Americans and discarding their body in the nearby lake. This phenomenon is commonly referred to as the Great Meadows Fog, and some individuals have reported seeing apparitions walking along the mist-covered road. Shades of Death Road coincidentally passes by the Dark Moon Bar, a popular destination for those on a weird New Jersey excursion. The road has a history of numerous fatalities, previously believed to be a curse on the area. Of all the eerie names found on the back roads of New Jersey, perhaps none is more unsettling than Shades of Death. As with many locations surrounded by tales and myths, truth and fiction have become blurred, making it difficult to distinguish what is real about this path. What can be confirmed is that for generations, this road has been a shadowy, an enigmatic route for travelers to navigate through one of the most secluded areas of the state. However, the origin behind this peculiar title remains a mystery. Legend has it that Shades of Death got its name from a history of murder. It is said that the original settlers of the area were an unruly group who had engaged in fights over women, resulting in fatalities. As their notoriety spread, the region became known as Shades of Death. When the law intervened and disbanded the group, they were reduced to controlling just one road, which bore the infamous moniker. The road was originally referred to as the Shades because of the trees that spanned the street to form a canopy over it. It is said that many murders occurred here over time, many of which remained unsolved. So local residents took matters into their own hands and gave the formerly pleasant Shades name a sinister of death twist. Alternative explanations exist for the name of the Shades name, shifting the focus away from murder and towards the death of natural causes. Shades of Death runs through an area historically known as the Great Meadows, an extensive stretch of swampy land upon its initial settlement. In the mid-1800s, a nearby cliff face was found to be the breeding ground for malaria-carrying insects. As the locals grew accustomed to the yearly outbreaks of this deadly disease, they also came to anticipate the annual loss of friends and loved ones. These somber events left their mark on the community's surroundings, including this particular road, which became a symbol of the bleak overlook concerning these epidemics. 
As you journey down shades of death today, the atmosphere remains eerie and unsettling. While the true reasons behind its title may never be known, the area clearly struck fear into the hearts of its early inhabitants who chose to label it with a name that invokes thoughts of death. Regardless of whether you believe the tales or historical facts surrounding this road, one thing is certain. It serves as a haunting reminder to proceed with caution when treading upon this desolate path. So perhaps it would be wise to heed these ominous warnings and offer up a prayer while traversing Shades of Death Road. Once more, folks, I'd like to bring to you the trailer for The Nightmare Collective. Dive into the abyss of the human psyche and beyond with The Nightmare Collective, a podcast that weaves tales of horror, science fiction, and fantasy into a tapestry of dark wonder. Are you ready to venture into uncharted realms where the eerie and the extraordinary collide? Our tales will transport you to a place where reality blurs, nightmares are born, and the impossible becomes all too real. From haunted houses to distant galaxies, from ancient curses to futuristic dystopias, the Nightmare Collective explores the darkest corners of human existence and the boundless possibilities of the unknown. But beware, dear listener, for once you enter, there's no turning back. Welcome to your new nightmare. When I first moved to New Jersey after my wife and I got engaged, we moved into a small 900 or so square foot house in Matawan. A place not far from my home in Staten Island, but still far enough to have taken this New York boy to Jersey. I absolutely love that house. And even though you could probably put that house inside of my current house that is down the New Jersey shore and still have plenty of room to move around, I still miss that place. And no, I'm not like bragging or anything that I have a big house. It's just that interest rates were really, really low when I bought. I now have what they call the golden handcuffs because this is now my home and will probably be my coffin because I can't go anywhere else. But anyway, what I loved more about the area was the history of the neighborhood that house sat in. It inspired me to write a few of my favorite stories. And you know what? It turns out that I'm not the only one. Americans were concerned with politics and war during the summer of 1916. The Great War was raging in Europe. As Pancho Villa led the Mexican Revolution in New Mexico, U.S. Marines invaded the Dominican Republic. As July of 1916 began, people were looking forward to a relaxing summer, one free of war-related concerns. During a short holiday with his family on the Jersey Shore, a young stockbroker went swimming before dinner on July 1st. In those last few hours, he did not know that he would start a hysteria along the East Coast that would eventually inspire Peter Benchley to write Jaws. What are the most feared animals on the planet? 
Sharks, they definitely are. They aren't found on land, wandering the streets, lurking in the city shadows, or even hiding under your bed. The chances of a shark attack are very slim, yet approximately 8 people each year die in shark attacks. Why is this seafaring predator so feared? And how did Madawan, New Jersey receive the most unwanted monster in 1916? As East Coast cities were developing into bustling hubs of modernity, beach resorts also saw a surge in popularity. The famed Jersey Shore in New Jersey offered a much-needed respite from the busy, unpleasant streets of New York, Brooklyn, and Philadelphia. Atlantic City quickly became a top vacation spot for all of the East Coast. However, tragedy struck the Garden State unexpectedly when four shark attacks occurred on the same day in 1916. Despite being located 30 miles north of Spring Lake and inland by 11 miles on a bluff 50 feet above the creek, Madawan, New Jersey experienced these terrifying events within just an hour and a half, something that had never been imagined before. In the old Madawan docks, Thomas Cottrell, a retired captain, observed an enormous dark form moving toward them with the tide. Despite knowing that sharks do not swim in brackish water, like Madawan Creek, he remembered recent shark attacks in Spring Lake nearby. Cottrell shouted warnings, but Lester Stillwell and his buddies didn't hear him. On July 12th, like most days, 11-year-old Lester accompanied his father to work. Despite struggling with epilepsy, he joined his friends for a swim after lunch. However, when something rough brushed against Lester's friend, Ali O'Hara's leg, there was no cause for alarm in Madawan Creek. That is, until a large dorsal fin suddenly emerged from the water. The boys screamed and Lester disappeared. Fearing the worst, the boys raced back to town while three men rushed to the creek edge in search of Lester. Unbelievably, it seemed that a shark was responsible for the boys' disappearance. Sadly, two days later, Sadly, two days later, Lester's body was found about 150 yards downstream in Madawan Creek. When carpenter Arthur Smith rushed to the site, he plunged into the creek in search of the lost child. Almost immediately, Smith was smacked by an unidentified creature. His leg oozed blood as he swam towards the shore. The shark had now taken another victim. And though Smith survived, he received over a dozen stitches for his encounter. Stanley Fisher, a local shopkeeper, joined the search for poor Lester Stillwell underwater. Despite witnessing Arthur Smith being rescued from the creek bank, Stanley continued diving. He eventually came across the boy's body at the bottom and tried to bring him up with him. However, before he could free the victim's leg, the shark attacked Stanley's thigh. The rest of the search party quickly rushed to his aid and managed to beat the shark away from their boat. Due to the wide laceration on his right thigh, which ran from his hip to his knee and removed at least 10 pounds of flesh, Stanley was left with a bloody mass on his leg. The physician present at the scene feared that Stanley wouldn't survive the 20-mile journey to the closest hospital. After hours of waiting, he was finally put on a train that sped non-stop to Long Branch, but unfortunately, he passed away during surgery while crying out, I did my duty. 14-year-old Joseph Dunn, accompanied by his brother Michael, embarked on a train journey from New York City to New Jersey. They discovered an ideal location for swimming in Madawan Creek. 
Tragically, Michael escaped unharmed while Joseph was not as fortunate. Something seized his leg and dragged him beneath the surface of the water. Acting quickly, Michael plunged into the creek to save his brother. Fortunately, Thomas Cottrell came to their aid and transported Joseph to the safety of his boat. Once they reached the shore, the rescue team transported the fourth victim of the day by car to New Brunswick, where Joseph remained hospitalized for 59 days while recuperating from his injuries. The town was stunned into action, determined to discover the apex predator that had infiltrated their community. A group of armed townspeople descended upon the creek, armed with an array of weapons, including shotguns, harpoons, rakes, spears, club, axes, and dynamite. Captain Cottrell hailed as a hero of the day, proudly announced that he had captured the 230-pound bull shark at the mouth of Matawan Creek. To everyone's surprise, he began selling tickets for viewing the notorious man-eater from Matawan Creek. It was almost unbelievable. How do shark attacks occur that far inland, so far away from its natural hunting grounds? Well, folks, it's safe to say that Matawan, New Jersey, had its fair share of drama in 1960. We've journeyed back in time to the days when shark attacks were making headlines and inspiring stuff of nightmares, stuff that still resonates today. Now, as I wrap up this toothy tale, remember that even in the darkest waters, there's always a glimmer of fascinating history beneath the surface. So as you head back to the shores of modern life, just Keep an eye out for those fins and stay on the lookout for the unsuspecting in every tide. After all, life's a beach, but sometimes it's a bit of a bite too. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save